Welcome to Comfortable Place on the Couch Series 2, a regularly scheduled podcast where three Canadians talk about a band full of Australians and a New Zealander bassist to Midnight Oil fans underwater and over land. My name is Darren Folds, and in the coming months, well, it seems like we're taking a hiatus from B-sides, covers, and demos, and instead we'll be talking to a producer or two of the band and the albums that we all love so much. Joining me each episode is my best friend and fellow Midnight Oil enthusiast, Robin Harbrin, and today we have a new guest joining us on the couch, the venerable Malcolm Byrne. Welcome to the couch, Mr. Byrne. G'day, g'day, g'day. How's he going, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Too bad about those Leafs. Even during an off-season where there's no games going on, they're still losing. <laughs> what the hell? Anyway, hi. Sorry. I'm from I'm from the Ottawa Valley. I'm allowed to do that. So yeah, you're you're kind of past Kingston Way, aren't you? Like getting close to the Quebec border originally, right? I grew up in uh, Deep River, which is sort of it's kind of almost exactly halfway along uh, Highway 17, Trans Canada Highway, uh, between Ottawa and North Bay, Nord Bay, Nord so, Bay, Nord Bay, right. there by yeah. geez. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, now you're from Newfoundland, yeah, I hear. of course. <laughs> Great. <laughs> no, actually, people from the Ottawa Valley do get mistaken for Newfies. Newfoundlanders, I should oh, say. Oh, yes. Watch out. You don't want to offend those Newfies. I think it's something to do with the Irish background and perhaps the Scottish gets thrown in there. So, you know, polite kind of people, but <laughs> a bit rowdy. <laughs> if for some reason you're listening to this podcast and you don't know who Malcolm Byrne is, let me just introduce him as the producer of 1996 Midnight Oil album, Breathe. Amongst other things. <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. Amongst many I also produced a record for Blue Rodeo now. Don't forget it. <laughs> that's right. You got lots of Canadians. Junk house. Yeah. Did you end up doing stuff with Crash Vegas? Because that was Jocelyn. Jocelyn did Crash Vegas stuff too, right? I produced the, the Red Earth album, the first yeah, yeah. Crash Vegas yeah, album. Right yeah. That's actually how I made the connection with um, Greg Keeler. Okay. Because Greg was like the silent member of Crash Vegas. He would write with yeah. Michelle. But he wasn't like officially a member. I, I don't know if it was a complication or whatever, but he just wanted to keep it that way. And then eventually they incorporated Colin Cripps. Colin became a full-time member, but uh, yeah. Cool. I wonder if maybe before we get started, if I can have a little bit of confession time with Mr. Byrne here. Confession. What is it, my son? <laughs> Open your heart. A few years ago, when we were going through um, all of the Oils albums chronologically, I think we spent seven or eight or nine hours talking about Breathe yes. across three podcasts. Jeez. I, I think I think it was the longest series for an album we did. Yeah. Wow. Partly because we love the album. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, sure. We absolutely love the album. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. But as we were doing it, some of the quotes from the band about um, some of the difficult times that were had during the sessions, or at least a few quotes that we that we've read about some difficult time during the session. Mm -hmm. So without knowing the stories behind where these quotes came from, I may have created a fictionalized version of Malcolm Byrne. And as we're speculating what's going on behind the scenes, created this caricature of you huh? as a, oh as, as this fellow who it's like a Simpsons character. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. might be stirring the pot a little bit here or there and, and just, you know, poking at people just to create a little bit of problem. So as I'm listening to those podcasts from a few years ago, thinking about, I get to talk to, to the actual person today. It's like, yeah. I, I feel a little bit bad about that. You know, 
your character became a, a very entertaining character oh, good. for the podcast. Well, is entertaining. I mean, it is, after all, the business that we're in. <laughs> People tend to forget that. You know, it's like, oh, I'm very serious and I'm an artist. No, no, you're an entertainer. Don't forget, even Beethoven knew that. Yeah, that's good. Basically, the fictional Malcolm Byrne. I don't want to be let down for you. That's a trend. If, <laughs> if you leave the room for, you know, as I think we had a quote from either Rob or Bones about if you leave the room to take a leak, then Malcolm will have recorded your part by the time by the time you're back again. <laughs> but you know, here, can I can I tell you something though? You have to remember that unlike us Canadians. They're Australians, and they may look yes. the same, but they're not. <laughs> they don't sound the same, and guess what? They definitely don't think the same. And and there's a there's a thing in Australia, and I say this because I'm married to one, you know, because Canadians we tend to be a bit, um, I think anyway, and I think many people who aren't Canadian would agree that Canadians tend to be kind of polite, deferential. Like I apologize when someone steps on my toe. You know, it's like, oops, sorry for stepping on my toe. <laughs> you know, I'm from Canada. That's what we do. Pardon me for getting run over by your car. But the Australians are, are very, they're, I'm not going to say abrasive, but they say everything up front. Like they don't mm. hold back. Like I hadn't right. seen Peter Garrett in, in, I think about seven or eight years. And by that point he was a, you know, he was an MP. I think at that time he'd switched to the labor. He, he was a green party guy and, and anyway so we got together in sydney him and J uh, jim Magini and my wife and i in a restaurant and, and peter showed up with like bodyguards and a limousine and a suit it was oh, very yeah. weird actually <laughs> <laughs> and and he, and and sandrine my wife was asking peter and said well you know how was it working with malcolm and he goes oh he was a bit of a cantankerous old bastard but he's great <laughs> you know like that's australians <laughs> like they just put it all out there and it and for us yeah. canadians it's like ooh, that's a boy a cantankerous bastard that sounds terrible yeah. but if you know an australian you understand so when when rob or, or bones say something there's an element of truth i mean humor's not humor unless it's there's some truth to it i think anyway but there's it's it's kind of like um People are constantly sort of uh, ribbing each other. And yeah, you know, if you turn around, Malcolm will record the whole bloody record yeah. while we went out for <laughs> yeah. dinner. Right yeah. That sounds to me like an Australian. Like, you know, there was some antagonism. I I, mm -hmm. I agree, actually. But um, there's an element, too, of the Australian yes. in there that we have to be aware of. So there you go. Malcolm, you're a fellow Canadian can you tell us about your origin story in getting into record producing? And if you want to tie it into Daniel Lanois and your connection with him and how'd you get started and how'd you meet Daniel Lanois? Sure. Um, well, I, as I just mentioned, I grew up in a place called Deep River, which is an, a rather odd town. It's It was set up in during the Second World War uh, and it became a nuclear uh, well, everybody who lived there, lives there, or did live there, uh, worked for Atomic Energy of Canada. And, and so there's a lot of brainy people in, in, in Deep River, <laughs> like, you know, people that literally went to Oxford and Cambridge University and so forth. And, and, uh, they all ended up in this tiny little town in sort of not the far north of Ontario, but the near north, I guess they call it near north. And, uh, is that like near beer or something? I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, I, w I was, I was not destined for greatness. 
on that level. Uh, everybody else's kids went to, you know, university and had really excellent marks in physics and chemistry. And, and I was, much to my father's dismay, I was not academically inclined. I, I don't know if it was because I just didn't have the interest or whatever, but the one thing I was pretty good at was music and art. Like the, that was kind of like my saving grace. And I was also good on the, the long distance running team. So that got me through the door a few times too. But uh, I kind of figured that I wasn't going to do the, the usual route. And, and so for me, music seemed like the direction to follow. And so to make it a, you know, a long story fairly short, I was going to go to Fanshawe College in London, Ontario. And I was in fact uh, accepted there the music, uh, music industry and arts program that's still going, as a matter of fact. But during the summer of, I believe it was 1980, I'd been living in Toronto at a, a, a like a rooming house on Beverly Street, not far from OCA, with a bunch of other people. And, and uh, I, I answered an ad. They needed somebody needed a keyboard player for a punk band that was going more into this sort of the the glam thing, a la David Bowie, uh, stuff like that. And I, I was immediately interested in that idea because I had a keyboard and I could play it. So I thought, okay, I'll go to the audition. And so I joined this group punk band called Arson. And, and uh, during the summer, we did a few gigs. And when school season started to loom on the horizon, I made the kind of well, I, I, I said to my father, Dad, I, I'm not going to go to college. I, I think I'm going to learn more about music by doing it for, for real. I don't know why I thought that would be the case. I mean, I would never <laughs> advise anyone to do that, but I did it anyways. But the punk band kind of disintegrated and turned into uh, an offshoot called Boys Brigade. So, oh, yeah. so Boys Brigade became a bit of a thing. And over the next couple of years, we made a record. We toured, had a couple of, you know, top 10 singles, which I think they still play on, on like the classic thing, a song called Melody gets played yeah. regularly. And there's a video out there somewhere of me with blonde hair, which is rather embarrassing. <laughs> but regardless of that. We'll look that up and put it in the show notes, everyone. But the yeah. connection to Dan Lenoir is that when Boys Brigade was first starting out and we were looking for a producer, we got a phone call from a couple of guys that lived in Hamilton. And they said, look, we've got this recording studio. We're going to get a grant from the government to make a, a record, and we're looking for a band to produce. So we had a meeting with this guy, and and uh, the general feeling in the band was that this guy was going nowhere. You know, who the hell, who the hell is this guy from Hamilton? Pfft, small time. <laughs> Forget about it. <laughs> you know, that was the general. I now I I don't mean to sound like I'm better than anyone else because but I I was a little bit interested in this guy because he had a couple of connections to a few people but I don't want to spoil the story so anyway we ended up making a record with Getty Lee from Rush because he wow. you know it was Anthem yeah. Records and and that was great and Getty's a wonderful person he did a great job in the record and everything but as things went the band kind of broke up and I was kind of at my wits end living in Toronto and uh, Jocelyn Lenoir. Daniel's mm -hmm. sister called me up and we had done a session together a few years prior and she called me up and said, what are you doing? Like, uh, you know, you're not in your band anymore. I'm not in Martha and the Muffins anymore. Do you feel like getting mm -hmm. together and maybe doing some music? So we, we, we met up and we started hanging out and then we started dating. And then one day, you know, I was visiting her place, her mom's house down in, in, uh, in Hamilton and, uh, 
I got to the bus station. I used to take the bus back and forth from Auto, uh, from uh, Toronto to, to Hamilton to, to visit. And uh, I got to the bus station in the Hammer, and I called up Jocelyn, and she said, well, I can't come get you because my mom's out with the car, but my brother Dan's going to come and get you. So I'm like, oh, geez, I hadn't seen him in a few years, you know. So I'm waiting in the bus station for this guy that I remembered being kind of, you know, mild-mannered looking with shorter hair. And I think he would wear like a button-up collar kind of shirt and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm waiting for him to show up. And by the way, you know, at this point, he'd done like Joshua Tree and Unforgettable Fire and Soul (laughs) and Peter Gabriel and all these records, you know. He was like the big shot guy, you know. And I'm waiting for him in the bus station and this long haired guy wearing like a bandana and a leather jacket comes walking up to me and he goes, Hey, I'm Dan. How's it going, man? <laughs> I was like, Dan, okay. <laughs> and I, so I got in the car with him and the first thing he says to me is, I heard that record you made with Getty Lee. And I was like, Oh, really? And he goes, Yeah, it wasn't very good. <laughs> he goes, You should have made a record with me. <laughs> and I was like, you asshole. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so we sort of hit it off from there. And from that point on, we got more f- familiar with each other. And at a certain point, he said to me, I'm going to be going down to New Orleans to make uh, to, to write my own record, which turned into the Salvin Akadi. And um, I was thinking that perhaps <clears throat> you could come down to New Orleans and be my assistant and just go through all these you know, recordings that I've made over the years and and find little snippets of things that might be interesting starting points for pieces of music, you know, to to develop. And I thought, yeah, sure, that sounds fantastic. So I went down there to do that. And during the course of that, he took me to see a band that had been interested in having him produce them called Neville Brothers. (laughs) And so when Dan decided he was going to make a record with the Neville Brothers, I put my hand up and said, if you're going to make a record with them, I want to be the engineer. And he's like, but you've never engineered a record before. I was like, it doesn't matter. I can do this. <laughs> now, I had played him some recordings that I'd been doing on my little home thing. And he was very impressed with those recordings. He thought they were very innovative and interesting. And he thought, you know, this guy's got something going on. It was, You know what I mean? So he gave me that opportunity, which I'm eternally grateful for. And that led to working with, uh, well, doing his solo record. And then we worked together on the uh, Oh Mercy record with Bob Dylan. Uh-huh. And then by that point, I was sort of flying off on my own. and I did another record with the Nevels on my own. And, and uh, I did a record with Chris, a guy called Chris Whitley, uh, Lisa Germano, Iggy Pop, John. You know, by that point, my name had become somewhat more established. So fast forward and, you know, here we are in 1996. And I got a call from Noel's to make an album. Yeah, yeah. And they were... The reason that they were interested in working with me is because they'd heard about how we made records. We didn't do it in the typical way. You know, we went in the studio with floor monitors, like a live rehearsal, and recorded it like that. And that's how I'd been making records for the past six or seven years before I started working with the oils. So, and they, they liked that idea. So, you know. What was your first exposure to the oils? Did were you aware of them before oh, they contacted absolutely. you? Of course, yeah, sure. How could you not be? Yeah. Um, so yeah, tell us about you know first hearing them, perhaps first meeting them, and maybe even getting into the studio the first day with them. Well, I think I might. I can't recall precisely. I think I spoke to their representative. I don't think they had a like actual manager at that time, but. It was a woman. I can't remember her name anymore, but she just said, like, would you be interested in coming to Australia? 
to, to meet with Midnight Oil. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, yeah, sure. Who doesn't want to go to Sydney, Australia? I mean, why not? You know, especially to, to do that, you know. So I, you know, I got on a plane and flew down there. And uh, they were set up in um, in a rehearsal space in Darling Harbor, which is was their place. And we were in the midst of, you know, I walked in and they were, you know, we they played a bunch of stuff and I made some notes like I usually do and, you know, about the arrangements and things like that. <clears throat> and then we went out to, to have something to eat or something like that. And they said, well, you know, if we were to work together, how, how would you like to work? And I said, well, how about we just make the record in here in your rehearsal space? And I went, yeah, you think we can do that? And I was like, absolutely. And Jim Magini said, well, great, you know, because he... You know, he's kind of like the the brain of the operation. He already had like yeah. a twenty four track machine and, and and a mixing board and a bunch of stuff, and so it was pretty easy to to do it. You know, we just sort of plugged into that situation, so we just seemed to hit it off pretty good about that. And we set a date to, for me to come back. I think I came back about six weeks later, and and off we went. Right on. Yeah. So breathe. It was recorded at Darling Harbor Studios in Sydney, but it was also a few of the tracks were recorded at Kingsway Studio in New Orleans. Um, can you tell us how that worked, you know, doing some stuff in Kingsway in Australia and some and doing a few tracks in, in the States? Did you do like the Sydney stuff first and then the Kingsway stuff later? And I imagine it was separate tracks in one location and other tracks in another location. Well, the, the idea was to get the basics down in, 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 in Sydney, and and then okay. the idea was to go to New Orleans to get a bit of that vibe, you know, the Kingsway yeah. sound, you know, some overdubbing and, and, and mixing was the idea. But once we got to New Orleans, you know, the, the atmosphere of the place kind of is unavoidable. But uh, what happened was, uh, as far as the tracks that got recorded there, they, that was not intentional. But mm. what happened was one night, because um, I'd never actually seen them play live. And, hmm. and, and usually I like to see people play live because it's a different thing. It's a different type of energy, sure you know, I'd ne- you know, just by chance or whatever, I just never actually seen them perform. And so, you know, sometimes when you're in a studio making a record with a band and you're working on a, a recording, you know, you, you lose sight of the live thing because the band has hmm. to go out and play this stuff live. And that's always important to keep in mind. Like, how are they going to translate that? You know, and sometimes things you do in the studio work great in the studio. They don't work so good live and vice versa. You know, I was in a band. We had a couple of tracks when I was in Boys Brigade that they were real showstoppers, as they used to say in the business. (laughs) But in the studio, they just never quite came off. You know, it was very frustrating. So trying to bridge that gap between live and studio has always been an interesting challenge for anybody, actually, I think. And um, when we got to New Orleans, uh, I think we'd been there about... Eh, maybe a week or so. And uh, a friend of mine had this tiny little club called the Mermaid Lounge. And I said, I said to my friend, hey, you know, is there any open slots at the Mermaid like over the next couple of days? Because I'm working with this band and I, I think it'd be really cool for them to like just show up and play unannounced, yeah. which they yeah. did. And they just showed up <laughs> at the club. It was a tiny little hole in the wild place right underneath the interstate. And in walks this big, tall, bald guy. And everyone's like, I think that's a guy from Australia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they started playing and it was just phenomenal. Like the energy uh, when they played together, there's a chemistry there that I had not quite heard when we were recording. And so I said, as soon as we got back to the studio, I said, I apologize, but 
I, I didn't quite, I don't think we've quite got that. So maybe we need to record a few more things to really nail that energy. So yeah. that's kind of where those tracks came from, I suppose. Okay. And thinking about the studio almost as an instrument, how did the different recording locations or did they contribute uh, to the different sounds that we hear on the album? Well, quite a bit. I mean, obviously being in New Orleans, there's a kind of a, there's a depth and some, some sort of darkness there that's unavoidable. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's just a, it's a different place altogether. And, and, and especially the place, you know, Kingsway, which was Daniel's Lenoir's studio that we, we'd, we'd all helped set up. And it had this quite, you know, it was this big old mansion in the middle of the French quarter. It's just like, you know, had this vibe to it, you know, and of course that, that's going to seep in no matter what, you know, um, so yeah, I don't know if you can hear those birds chirping outside my door there. We do that. It's very nice. Like, I like it. I like the birds. We used to record in my sunroom and at night we'd get the crickets going in the background <laughs> yeah. and it creates a real some, nice vibe. Yeah, some ambience. Yeah. yeah. Late afternoon, birds chirping away like crazy. Yeah. I often <laughs> picture like in my mind's eye when I think of you guys recording in New Orleans, like I just picture like the big old house and, you know, just a, a dining room, just with things just all pushed to the side and all the equipment set up and the windows open and crocodiles walking through and all that <laughs> well, kind of stuff. No, actually, we, the, the studio, the, the mixing board was set up in the foyer of this big, I mean, it was a, this big giant staircase that came down and the foyer was at the bottom of that staircase. And, the, yeah. and that's where the mixing board was set up. And then the band was sort of set up you know, in this other room right next to it, like sort of like the parlor, you know? Yeah. And uh, right on. so, yeah, it was a, it's cool. It's a good vibe. A lot of, a lot of great stuff got made there. Actually. I think actually the crash Vegas record, we, we made part of that down there. That was the first album that got recorded at Kingsway. It was almost like the test run <laughs> for the studio. Okay, right on. <laughs> Poor Canadians. So, uh, the opening song underwater well, it is a great opener with crunchy bass, organ, solid drums joining in, noisy guitars, but it still has a sparse sound that's really intriguing or, I don't know, I almost find it ad- addictive, that that song. So it's it's got a lot of room to breathe, so to speak, and so do a lot of the other songs on the album. Was that a deliberate vibe that you and the band worked with at the beginning of the sessions, or did... Did you realize that as it went? Well, at that point in my work, I was trying very hard to not get. Um, I mean, I'm 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 good at a certain. So everybody's kind of has their thing that they're really good at, but it's also good to 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 say, well, okay, I've done that. What can I do differently? You know, I mean, for me as an artist, that's that's always the challenge. Is like, what's the next thing that I can do? I don't want to just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. I find it really quite annoying when I hear records and I won't mention names, but there are some people who make the same record over and over and over. And just, it's, it's baffling to me why you would even want to do that, let alone <laughs> consciously do that. You know, maybe they're not <laughs> capable. I don't know. Or maybe they're insecure. I'm not sure. But for me, and I got this from, from working with Dan and probably he got it from himself, but he probably got it from working with Brian Eno as well as like, you know, as an artist, you're constantly exploring you, you want to be looking forward, you know, it's like, okay, well, that's been done. Where can we go next? And, you know, wh- so at that, I think at that time I was, I was genuinely interested in trying to, um, 
to keep things fairly sparse, you know, not to get too layered with like a bunch of mushy overdubs, you know, like 20 guitar tracks and 15 layers of keyboards. I was like totally getting away from that. I just thought, well, you know, what if, what if I can have like one really interesting sound with a lot of ambience around it? So you hear it, you know, and it's not obscured with a bunch of other junk, you know. And also, you know, that was in reverence to the fact that any of these tracks could be performed live, you know, because there's really, yes. you know, they don't have to have, you know, anything else going on uh, to, to pull that off. And they're, they're very good at that anyways. They've always managed to do that. I, you know, I've seen them since <laughs> play live, but, yeah. you know, they, they always pull it off anyway. But but I, I just sort of thought that, you know, let's try and stick with that aesthetic as, as much as possible. Yeah, and, and Midnight Oil has been really good at reinventing themselves each album, mm -hmm. willing to take new directions. So it sounds like you were also in that with them, where your production techniques and, and so on were also willing to change or, or well, wanting to do something new. Yeah, I mean, my, my ethos, and if you were to go to my website, you'd see it written in black and white, literally, is that unlike some of the producers I've been produced by or, or other situations I've seen, it's like you, you as an artist have to fit their mold. It's like, well, this is how we do things around here, kids. So just get, you know, get in the mold and, you know, I, I always like the idea of, of trying to adapt to the artist. You know, each project I've ever done, I've always thought, well, I want, I want to try and come up with something original with the artist, like something they haven't quite done before, but also I haven't quite done before to come up with something, you know, that's unique and stands on its own. And that record, I mean, in a way, I think it's, it doesn't sound like it was recorded almost well, more than 20 years ago to me. Yeah. It, it could have been recorded like two weeks ago. Sonically, I think it holds up. You know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It was quite ahead of its time in that sort of, you know, the way records sound these days, like people will take sounds and they'll just mess them up and they'll take the drums and put them through a fuzz box or whatever. Yeah. You know, that wasn't always yeah. the case. You know, uh, records were kind of made differently back then, you know, and if they, t if they ended up sounding kind of screwed up or weird or, you know, I'm going to try and not use words, but you know, when you're trying to bend sounds a little bit, you know, so I think that that, that album, you know, probably doesn't sound so dated because yeah. we were not trying to make something that sounded like something that was going on in, in that time. I mean, it's always been my personal ethos to, to try and make something that holds up in 10 years or 20 years. You know, you can still listen to it and it's not like, oh, that brings me down memory lane, you know, like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just listening. I'm going to jump forward a little bit in my questions here, and then we'll probably go back in time a little bit later. But um, I, you just got me thinking about drum sounds again. There are a variety of drum sounds on Breathe, and it, and it seems to me that Rob had much more of an opportunity to rock out on several tracks on this album compared to Earth and Sun and Moon, um, what they'd recorded three years prior. Um, can you tell us 
a little bit about how you achieved the variety of drum sound that we hear on on Breathe. And perhaps the studio was part of it. Perhaps it had something to do with technical things like mic placement. But it also seems like you used a, a variety of, of different drum setups and, and perhaps even forgoing a traditional kit on some songs. Yeah, well, there were some, some tracks that, that were like more... Um non-traditional if you will but um again you know and it's kind of part of my uh you know sometimes you put on a record and and like it's the same all the way through like it's the same Mm -hmm. snare sound the same kick drums it's like like it's just become like a factory you know and it's like everything just you know it's a different song and it's a different arrangement and everything but but all the way through whereas some of my personal favorite records i mean going you know going way back you know, to like say the White Album by the Beatles. Mm-hmm. I mean, every track on that album sounds different. Yeah, you know, and that to me, I just thought that's that was what you're supposed to do. <laughs> you know, it never occurred to me that you would just get like the drum sound and <laughs> and have it through the entire record be the same. So, yeah, I, I've all, even when even if the drum sound was recorded the same, you know, when I'm mixing, I'll change it to suit the song. Mm-hmm. So everything to me, there's only two things that really dictate anything. It's the song and the singer, you know, right. You know, they're the, they're the, like the driving forces of any piece of music. So from a painterly sort of impressionistic point of view, you know, I'm not going to use a certain snare sound, uh, if it doesn't suit the way I'm going mm-hmm. with the track, mm-hmm. you know, if it's too aggressive sounding or too, mm-hmm. too normal sounding, I'll, you know, I'll take the snare drum and put it through, uh, you know, a preamp and mess it up or compress the crap out of it or not even use half the mics on the drum kit. You know, so I've, I've mixed stuff where I took out all the drum mics and just left, you know, like the floor tom and that was the whole drum sound. You know? yeah, and yeah. that might've happened wow. on a few of the oils tracks. You know what I mean? It's just whatever's interesting. I mean, I, going back to Dan Lenoir, I remember when I was mixing, uh, I think it was from his second solo album. It's called uh, uh, Beauty of Winona. And uh, he said, look, I'm going to leave you with this track to mix it. And I'm going to go off and ride my motorcycle and be back in an hour and a half or something like that. He's going to take a bath. Yeah. I don't know what he's going to do, but he, <laughs> said, but he he said, like, I'll be back and, and, yeah. and you know, just be creative but he said, just, you know, make sure that when I get back, whatever you do is a stroke of genius and completely original. <laughs> Other than that, have a good time. <laughs> that's, that's all. <laughs> See you later. Yeah. And I was like, but that's a nice challenge, you know. It's like stroke of genius and completely original. Hmm. Try doing that like once a day for, you know, a week or a month. You know, it's, 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 but it's that idea of like trying to outdo yourself, you know, yeah. don't, don't, don't become complacent you know, or comfortable. And of course that's gotten me into a certain amount of crap with drummers. Cause I remember I was doing the blue rodeo record, right. And Cleve Anderson was the drummer at the time. And I remember I was just doing what I normally do. And he comes up to me, he's like really upset. And I said, what's the matter, Cleve? And he goes, the Tom fills are supposed to go from left to right, not right to left <laughs> in, in the mix. And I was like, really? <laughs> I mean, who's paying attention to that except you right but that's not the way they sound and i i thought okay well i respect you of course i'm gonna you know 
rebalance. But in my mind, I'm not interested in, in whether it sounds exactly like what the guy's hearing when he's sitting in his drum kit. You know, yeah. who's going to hear that except him, right? It's everything's for the audience. It's for the for the yeah. viewer, for the listener. You know, it's it's otherwise it's just a looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, Oh, I like the way I look. Oh, haircut's looking pretty good these days. <laughs> <laughs> my drums sound like they're going from left to right. I'm proud of myself. Yeah. <laughs> no offense, Cleve. I mean, he's, I love yeah. his playing. It's great. With uh, the variety of sounds also in the organ, keyboard, and guitar, were you working closely with Jim in particular on producing that variety of sounds that we hear on the album? Well, I mean, typically the way I like to work is whoever's got the idea gets to do it first. Like even if someone's not a keyboard player, it's like, you know, maybe the bass player says, what about a, like a piano part that goes like this? And I was, well, go over there and try it. You know, or maybe yeah. the keyboard player says, well, what about this other bass thing like that? And it's like, I'll say, well, you try it, you know, like, so that may be where that thing that got me into trouble where, you know, someone <laughs> leaves the room and it's like, I <laughs> recorded my entire drum kit, but it's just, but I'm not precious. That's the point. You know, I, 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 when, when making albums, it's not like you're the bass player, so you get to play all the bass and you're the guitar player. So, so if Jim had an idea, I'd say, Jim, go try it. And, and, and they were cool enough that if I had an idea, they'd say, well, here, you're your musician, have a go, you know? So, yeah. you know, that kind of gets me thinking about, you know, Bones playing the clarinet and, and some of these strange credits that we read about. Clarinet. <laughs> Did he play? I don't even remember that. Well, that's that's what we we read on in, in I'm sure he did. I mean Yeah. I know he's very he's a very multi faceted fellow. <laughs> Old bones. Well, so that got me thinking about the difficult question that that we wanted to ask you. Um Rob Hurst wrote in his book, Willie's Bar and Grill, about recording breathe, that um the producer it was always the producer, and sometimes it was the Canadian producer. <laughs> Canadian. Canadian producer. It's like he couldn't remember my name or something. <laughs> Malcolm played a range of instruments, including your own, if you left the studio for anything longer than a quick piss. Did he say quick piss? That's what he said. <laughs> there you go. See, I told you he's Australian. <laughs> you did. See, just the word in the sentence says it all. <laughs> now, your name is credited to playing... Um, an instrument on just about each of the tracks on Breathe. And that does seem to be a bit of a departure for an Oils album. Not only that, but, you know, Martin played mandolin. Pete gets an acoustic guitar credit. And as I said, Bones gets a clarinet credit. You know, you told us how those kind of decisions were made. You know, if you had an idea, go ahead and play it. But thinking back about Rob's comment, you know, what about conflict? in the recording sessions. It seems that um, both Rob and Bones expressed that at points, this was a difficult album for them to work on. And I think that we've read about various people stepping away from the recording um, on at least one occasion. So what is it about, or is there something about conflict and creativity? Is it just that Australian uh, directness when we're reading these quotes, what was happening there? Well, I, I think that it wouldn't be the first time that I've had a, a little bit of friction going on in the studio. Um, not 
there's no, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, it's not like a Phil Spector thing where it's like, you know, <laughs> careful with the gun, Phil. I need my ears, you know. But probably, probably from from my experiences working with Dan Lenoir, he he only serves one master, and that master is is is, is creativity, and and everything else is subservient. So that's probably something I picked up from him. Whereas if there was some sort of element of formality or bureaucracy, uh, you know, the tendency would be to sort of ignore that completely. And, and I sort of grew up as a, as a engineer producer seeing, I mean, even look, if you go and read Bob Dylan's book Chronicles, there's a whole chapter in that book that's dedicated to uh, this album that we made called Oh Mercy. And, there's a very clear episode in that book where Bob talks about, you know, an almost a physical altercation with Dan. Really? Um, yeah. I forget what the reason was, but it was something to do with the fact that, you know, Bob felt that the record wasn't going exactly the direction that he was anticipating. So, uh, and Dan got, you know, kind of upset because, you know, he, he, he puts himself a hundred percent into music into what he's doing. And if feels like someone's not appreciating that, um, that can be very disturbing for anyone, I suppose. Anyway, it's not an excuse really, but I, I think an, an element of tension in the recording environment is, I mean, there's an element of tension in the live circumstances without a doubt. Okay. Now it may not be from, from interpersonal kinds of things, but when you're on stage, there's a certain energy like, you know, mm-hmm. and it keeps you on your toes you know, mm-hmm. whereas in the studio, you know, I almost feel kind of uh, uncomfortable when everyone's just like getting along like really good friends and having a really nice time. Like that's what you do in your spare time, <laughs> you know, like when you're out at the bar with your buds, you know, okay, we're all, you know, you, you can talk about politics, but, you know, everyone just goes, yeah, okay, well, we're having fun. But in the studio, like whenever, oh, we're just getting along. And, and, and the end result, I've heard it a million times is there's, there's no, no tension there, hmm. you know? So again, I serve only one master as well in the studio. And it's the same master I hope that the artists are serving, which is creativity and trying to come up with something really original and authentic and timeless, you know? And, and if I feel like things are getting in the way of that, you know, I will knock those doors down, you know, and mm-hmm. clear the way. And sometimes yeah. the art, you know, cause I've been an artist in the studio making work. So I know what it's like to be on the other side of that. So it's not like I'm unaware of that. You know, um, but I think some sometimes artists can get lazy, especially people who are established. It's not so much with the younger artists that haven't made, you know, they've they've only made the first or second album. But when you work with people that have been making records for, say, 20 years or something, it's like, you know, they, they get a little lazy, you know, and they need to have someone to kick them in the butt. You know, and I, one of my favorite anecdotes is a friend of mine was hired to do an overdubbing session with with Elton John. And, and so he flew down to Atlanta to to do this one overdub with Elton John. And when Elton John showed up in the studio, the first thing that Elton John said to my friend Kevin was, listen, I'm Elton John. I understand that everything I do is great. Well, I'm here to tell you that it's not. And I don't want you to sit on the other side of that door, window and tell me, that was great, Elton. That was great. He said, tell me if it's crap. Tell me if yeah. it's rubbish, because yeah. otherwise I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want to be that person that just ends up being, you know, 
useless and boring because people just go around telling you how great you are all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so there's a tendency for me to kind of push people a little bit in, in places that they maybe not quite used to and, and, and break things up a little bit. So, you know, perhaps some of that came from me saying, well, you know, I mean, I know where it came from specifically with bones was because I had this idea for a, a track and, mm -hmm. and I actually picked up the bass and started playing this riff, yeah. um, on this track and, and, uh, and it just sort of started going where it was going to go. And I just thought, well, I'm not going to suddenly stop and like, you know, show somebody else how to do this because we we're going to lose the momentum. And I think that upset him, you know, because he was like, well, why didn't you give me a chance to to learn that part and play? And I think I think we did, but he wasn't quite feeling it for some reason or whatever. Right. But you know what? Right. I mean, the honest truth is, I mean, I remember talking to 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 uh, some musicians in Tom Petty's band when I was on tour with them a long time ago. And they said, like, God, like we didn't even hardly play on the record sometimes you know, they'd bring in somebody else. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this, it's almost like a fictitious imaginary idea that the band actually gets, I mean, it wasn't the case back about 50 years ago. I mean, a lot of, even the birds records, like half the time on those records, it's not them playing on there. It, they they yeah. would bring in session people because they didn't have a lot of time and they had to do like 10 songs in two days and they couldn't screw around. So they'd bring in the top people. And it's like, but you're in the band, you can go out and, get the girls, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you get all the good stuff Take it easy, yeah. <laughs> you know, or boys or whatever you're interested, but you know, you know what I mean? Like uh, it's, it was only over a period of time where it was like, well, the musicians must play on their record, you know, and they have, they're the bass player, so they have to play the bass, you know, it's like, why? I don't, I don't really get that, you know? So, and, and you know what? I'm surprised there isn't a credit on there with, <clears throat> for Rob playing guitar. Cause he's a great guitar player. <laughs> You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And I, there may be, I, I don't remember. So there you go. And Rob's a great singer. He did a lot of the backing yeah. vocals. Oh, yeah, same yeah, with Bones, sure. you know, it wasn't like I was going to take over from that, but. Yeah. Rob mentioned um, in his book too, that he was having anxiety issues uh, around this time as well. And, and he had in the past during other recording sessions. And I wonder um, if that was the impetus for his, it seems like maybe he left before the record was finished um, at least you guys were finished in Kingsway. I, I think he went on, on this trip to New Mexico or something like that. He may have. A, I, uh, to be honest with you, it's, it's a while ago, so I forget. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. <laughs> he went and laid on an Indian blanket and took peyote out in the desert. <laughs> I forget. <laughs> now is the time to hear. On the flip side, both uh, Peter and Jim, Rank Breathe is one of their very favorite albums. Uh, it's a very special album to them. So while maybe Bones and Rob have different feelings about it, Pete and Jim certainly were really into the recording of it and have good memories of it. Do you? Well, I, th I think they all do. I mean, the last time I saw all of them, we all got on pretty well, you know? Yeah. Like it yeah. was four three four years ago that round the circle around the world tour that they did oh yeah, yeah i think i saw them uh playing their first north american show so they were quite tired because they just arrived from like brazil or something but still yeah, they were the right. oils and we all hung out and 
It's just like old, yeah. old times. But no, I mean, Jim has often said, and, and you know, we're, we still com- correspond. He said, and it was one of the nicest things that anyone's ever said to me uh, in response to a project that we, I've worked on was he said, you know, I, I, I learned. And for him to say this is for me, it was a high compliment because Jim is a genius. I mean, he's yeah. literally a bonafide musical genius as far as I'm concerned. And, and he's, you know, he's a, he records, he's a great writer he's an amazing recordist himself he's a multifaceted musician and for him to say to me that he learned a lot from from working on the record with me that's like wow you know that that's that meant more to me than just about anything anyone could ever say <laughs> you know yeah. to, to have someone say hey you 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 taught me something i thought that was really great you know and you know pete and pete called me a cantankerous bastard but whatever <laughs> he was a he was a labor mp at the time he can say whatever he likes <laughs> well and and for what it's worth rob says that despite his experience in the studio he recognizes that you produced a great album with them and he's really happy with how you got them to sound and i think you get you got a, a really nice thanks in the in the mm. liner notes beyond credit for your work, you know, special thanks for your approach and your sensibility towards the recording itself. Mm. So, okay. Yeah, no, it was, it was a special project to work on. And I'm every, I don't listen to much that I've done in the past. I, again, I'm thinking forward, Yeah. (laughs) but every now and then I'll, I'll like, you know, especially because I do this weekly radio show called the long, I'm doing, can I do my own plug? Yeah. Yeah. On WKNY radio Kingston. (laughs) 1490 <laughs> FM. I do a program called The Long Way Round, and it's uh, from 8 till 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, you can go to radiokingston.org, is the, and you'll find it. But anyway, doing the show once a week, you know, sometimes I'll feature stuff that I've worked on, you know, if it's in context of the theme of the show, because every week's theme is a different thing. And so I think I played some of Breathe on a show maybe about a year ago and i remember thinking wow that's i haven't listened to that for a while (laughs) that's that's very interesting sounding how about martin haven't talked about him yet uh martin the quiet one yes (laughs) the the voice of reason well martin rotzi no he's a lovely guy and he's a great musician and you know, if you've seen them live, it's the two guitars. So there's a balance there. There's always, you know, if Jim's playing the keyboard, Martin's playing the guitar or whatever. But, but when you hear those two guitars going at the same time, that's, that's a phenomenal sound. And it's very much those two individuals because they, they both play in a similar style, but they're quite different, Jim and, and, and Martin. So it kind of provides that uh, two guitar thing that makes us all go yes so that sounds very good (laughs) we like that yeah you know especially when the two of them get like a tremolo effect like through their vox amps and stuff it's like it's pretty great how about this Buddy Miller, Emmy Lou Harris, Daryl Johnson, all joining in on Home. How did that come together? Was it always in the plan to have Pete sing Home as a duet? Was Emmy Lou just happened to be around the studio? That, 
one day, or how did that come together? Do you remember? That's quite a. That's kind of a good question. I, 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 I think probably just because people were around. I mean, that's how mm-hmm. I often operate. It's like someone happens to be around. It's like, well, what are you doing? Like, why don't you come in and do something on the record? You know, like, yeah, I, you know, sitting there and just playing them the the track. It's like, I, I think it was just a circumstantial situation that yeah. uh, Emmy Lou and and, and Daryl was there. So I think they might have been playing a show. Yeah, actually, the okay. spy because that would have been the Spy Boy, Emmy Lou's touring band at the time was Daryl mm-hmm. and Buddy and, and Emmy and a guy named uh, Brady Blade. Yeah. Oh, if if Emmy Lou hadn't been around, how would Home have turned out? How could that song? Seems Emmy Lou has such an important part in it. Would it have just been given to Bones or? Yeah, probably, probably, probably. It probably would have been left without any harmony, as a matter of fact. Okay. I, I imagine. I, I believe in fate, happy accidents yeah. and fate. This is very much a part of the process. And so when something presents itself as an opportunity, you take it and then you look back on it and say, well, I couldn't even have planned that, you know. <laughs> But thankfully, our higher power was watching over us. <laughs> the bass line in Home, I particularly love. And it's not even totally clear. Did, did you play that? Did Jim play hmm. bass on Home? If <laughs> I honestly don't. I think that was Bones. I'm pretty sure it would have been Bones yeah, on that. I'm it's, pretty it's, sure. It's fairly uh, slidey. It has a very different style to it than... Than Bones' usual playing, I think he was playing a Hofner. I think he because he would sometimes crack out the the, the Hofner bass, which is a very different sounding. You know, that's the Paul yeah, McCartney. the short scale Paul McCartney. You know, it sounds almost like a like a, a you know upright bass. It's got that okay. sound. So there's also uh, Sins of Omission. Uh, again, this might be working your memory too hard, but it starts off with 25 seconds of feedback and. Uh, various haunting noises and then Pete says a little something that we can't quite make out I understand you probably don't remember (laughs) what he said either he probably said you better get yourself in here, Bones, or else you're not lying on the record. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be it. I think Pete's saying, I'm just listening. That's exactly what he's saying. Yeah, because we were jamming this thing for a while. We just kept, it was the night that we went to the Mermaid Lounge to, for them to play. And we came back and everyone was all fired up and, and this thing started happening. And, and I think Pete was just kind of laying on the floor kind of zoning out to it you know because it was it was there was something going on it was like yeah. you know 1 30 in the morning and it was new orleans and people were just making sounds and it was happening and pete was just like didn't know he was supposed to start singing <laughs> no i'm just listening i'm just listening <laughs> okay yeah no that's that's great right on the closing track gravel rash the instrumental what can you tell us about that enigma Reportedly, there are lyrics to this. Every once in a while, they pop up on the internet, and 
as an aside, they don't seem to be anything close to something that Pete or Jim or Rob would write. But I'm wondering, you know, was this maybe a studio creation? Like you're talking about um, the guys coming back from a gig and just jamming out. Was this perhaps, did it result from a jam session? Do you know if there were lyrics? Yeah, there were. It was something that I think Jim had kind of been kicking around with and he wasn't quite sure if it was going to work or fit. And maybe it didn't quite fit into the oils oeuvre. And, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, lyrically it was a bit outside because, you know, Jim, Jim, Jim does write some of the lyrics. It's not, it's not like, you know, Peter writes all the words and Jim writes all the music. I mean, quite often some of those tracks are just completely Jim. Like you just come in with the song and it's basically a song. It's already written, you know, so it might have been something that was kind of experimental in nature. And then we just decided to sort of leave it like that rather than than yeah. trying to fit it into a mold. That it, and it's nice to, I always, I think I always advocate for at least one instrumental track on a record. Huh. I, I, I yeah. used to love that when I was a, a listener. I always liked a couple instrumental bits or whatever on a record, you know, a bit of a, bit of a break. The Oils did do some instrumentals on previous albums, mm-hmm. but they had gotten away from it for a while. Right. So it was, it was great to have it back. I'm going to read you some of what the internet says the lyrics for Gravel Rash might have been. <laughs> and just 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 for fun, you tell me if you think that this is what was supposed to be going on or not. Skating down the street, just beware. People dropping dirt bombs everywhere. When you smell that asphalt grin and you feel it burn your skin, it's gravel rash. <laughs> it's probably about skateboarding or something, right? I know. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like a skateboarding song. It doesn't sound like Jim, though. It doesn't sound like does oils, it? does it? Well, that, that actually sounds more like something Pete would have come up with lyrically. Because he, he, you know, surfs up as his lyrics. Yeah. So yeah. that's sort of, he's, he's a little more abstract, you know? Peter. Yeah. Not that Jim I guess is, we'll but, never really know until we get the oils themselves on the podcast. Yeah, there you go. Question. Yeah. Darren and I are both fans of Canadian legend Neil Young. And there's a number of times this album feels like both Neil's countryside from Harvest and Harvest Moon and the crazy horse side with the loud songs like Sins of Omission bring on the change was there anything deliberate <laughs> well it, was that, it ever said can we sound like neil young <laughs> well i don't know if it was deliberate but you know like you like yourselves i'm I, I fall into that category of yeah i love neil you know you know i love the crazy horse and i love neil's acoustic stuff and everything else in between you know so that uh, that affinity would be definitely coming from me i should think <laughs> <laughs> Neil Young's being an inspiration because he's gone such a wide gamut. Like, you know, how well, different see, his songs can sound. There's a perfect example of what we were discussing earlier. You know, he, yeah. I mean, he, he, you know, he has no reverence for himself at all. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, it's just like, okay, well, I did that on that record. Now I'm going to do something completely different, you know? And, I mean, obviously you can get away with that a little bit, bit more when you're a solo artist you know, he can make a record with Crazy Horse and then do a completely acoustic thing or whatever, uh, or a jazz record or whatever he wants. But still, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you make the reference to Neil Young and people say, yeah, but he's Neil Young. And it's like, 
Yeah, but he's always been like he was Neil Young when when he first started. He was never not <laughs> Neil Young. So when are you going to start <laughs> yes. doing your thing? Like you're going to wait for someone to tell you it's time? Like you know, yeah. you just do it. You know, so you know that's that's why he's Neil Young is because he's always kind of done his thing the way he does it. You know, and believe me, there's been some conflicts down along the road with, between him and some people. But whatever, you know, like it's always been great. So yeah. You got um, a writing credit uh, for Sins of Omission with the band. Um, that's one of the very few times that uh, somebody has shared shared a writing credit with them. What was it like um, working on lyrics? I don't think I worked on any words on that song. Oh, okay. Not that I recall. I don't recall the exact circumstances, but I we had done that. They had played that gig, and I was all fired up, and I was like, yeah. let's do something. And I just started playing this this riff on the base, you know, yeah. just to get, you know, it was kind of like a summoning call, you know, yeah. cause I, everyone was had sort of drifted off into the house, you know, and I started playing this thing really <laughs> on the bass. It was like, Oh, back. something's going on, you know, and next thing you know, Rob shows up and he starts playing the drums and then, and, and Jim was there and, and whatnot. So, you know, that's probably how that sure. came, you know, cause that, that that bass riff was kind of what the song it's where it came from so that would be yeah hence the writing credit yeah where did somebody have lyrics for that already that no. they would have brought no. No. then no so that whole song was just created like you, on the floor that was just pure like i can't attest to the lyrics a hundred percent but it felt like yeah. peter just kind of came up with that on the spot you know, like yeah. that, like this, like whatever was going on musically inspired a, a visual for him to to write something lyrically. Yeah, it's almost like you know you you can get a moose call and <laughs> and the moose comes running and and so apparently Malcolm can sit down with a bass and and the oils <laughs> come, come and, and a song is created <laughs> just yeah. like that. Wow. Well, hopefully it's not <laughs> a moose in heat. <laughs> I think that Breathe is probably one of the most underrated Oils albums out there. Um, some folks dismiss it as that country album that the Oils did. Other people, like me, when I first heard it, found it you know very abrasive, too abrasive for their tastes. But I've come to to really love Breathe, and I think that it you know starting with that groove that that is reminiscent of earth and sun and moon that we get with underwater and surfs up tonight and then segueing into that chill common ground sound and then rocking with grit and edge for songs like sins of omission and bring on the change. You've got slow burns like star of hope and vulnerability shown in songs like home and in the rain and e-beat is sonically as interesting as, as anything else they've done with that doctor who guitar hmm. breathe really does have it all i think we were talking earlier about you know the ups and downs that this album kind of brings you through which is so satisfying compared to yeah. what you were speaking about earlier you know you, you lock in your drum sound you lock in your bass sound and you just throw that whole album through that filter you guys must be very proud of of the work you did on this album how do you feel so here comes the question after all that gushing here comes the question how do you feel breathe fits into the overall midnight oil catalog i think it fits exactly where it's meant to be to be at that point in their their you know you have to remember that 
they'd been touring and you know it's it's a little different when you're from australia and you go on a world tour you know it's you're gone for a long time and it's really hard on the family and things like that you know um i think they'd reached a point where they were not quite wanting to keep that amount of pressure going on and peter uh you know i remember six months later after we'd finished the record and i I was talking to Jim and and I said, oh, you know, how's everyone doing? And he said, well, you know, Rob's doing the Ghost Riders thing and Bones is off with the doing, I think he was playing in some Australian actors band for a while. And, and he said, and, and I haven't talked to Pete, but he's probably out there, you know, saving a tree somewhere in Queensland <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. You know, like, like Peter had really, you know, that was when, that was really the beginning of his political career as, as an actual politician you know, and so they'd all reached a certain point where that, and that record just sort of felt like it fit that moment in their time space, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. But it certainly is timeless. Like you were speaking of earlier, this album stands up, you know, 25 years later, you're not listening to this thinking, yeah, yeah, this is, this is the album that they made when they missed out on grunge a couple of years earlier. And we're trying to recapture that. This is something entirely different altogether. Yeah, and I, I, that's nice to hear, and and I think that um, be interesting for me to go back and listen to at least one or two of those tracks that you mentioned because now I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, sometimes it's like when you're making, at least for me, when when making albums, it's almost like you, when you're done, you wake up from a dream, and you're like, yeah. how did that happen? Like, I mean, I I, I write. By the way, I'm going to give myself another plug. I've got a, yeah. a record of my own music that's going to be coming out at some point sometime this year <laughs> and yeah. it's the same when you're writing like sometimes you get into a certain mode and and then you get to where you're, you're okay i'm done or whatever and you look and then you think back like how did i do that like where did that change come from how did they write those words for that you know it's like it's almost like you wake up from a trip mm. you know or a yeah. dream or something like that and same with making records it's like I'll hear stuff and go, what in the heck? <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> like, you know, like I can't even put myself mentally back into that place, you know, yeah. where, where that came from. But, you know, then it gradually starts to unwind and like, oh, yeah, now I remember. Yeah, it makes sense. A lot of times things that we do as artists are reactions, you know, hmm. we're reacting to the world around us and stimuli or, or maybe you're just excited about a new piece of equipment or maybe you heard something somebody else did and you were motivated by, by that, you know, or, or you, or you just become excited about uh, a, a certain way of working, you know, that you, you, that you, that you adopt for that period of time where you, I mean, one of the things that I've always advocated is that you have to set yourself some limitations and, mm -hmm. and there's two things. Decisions are your friends. Yeah. When when doing anything artistically, you have you know decision making is such a huge part of the the creative process, you know, and especially these days when you know the technology is so developed that it's almost like people don't need to make decisions. You know, they mm -hmm. can just keep recording and recording and recording, and then then they get to this point where they have to make all these decisions because they've recorded all this stuff, and it's like <laughs> they get almost like freaked out you know make somebody else find somebody else to make that decision for me you know i can't do it you know but i i like work, working in a somewhat limited fashion mm -hmm. where it's like you know okay there's only going to be like 16 tracks of information on this song yeah. 
and that's it. I'm not going to cross that barren. And if I have to, I'll have to just, I'll have to make a decision between this or that, you know. And the constraints themselves force you. Yeah. You know, in, in the sort of the, the Zen sort of way, you know, limitations can, weaknesses can be your strengths. You know, if you're going to yeah. go back to Kung Fu, <laughs> oh, grasshopper, your weaknesses can be our greatest strength. You know, it's like, but you know what I mean? Like, like that's true though. You know, something that you may consider a disadvantage if you turn it on its head and look at it as an advantage, you know, mm-hmm. even from the recording process, because the way we recorded everything was with live speakers in a room with a bunch of people all playing loud. You know, yeah. there's only certain things you can do, and then there's certain things you can't do, you know, like because all the drums got into the guitars or the guitars are in the drums, so you can't come up with a new guitar part. Yeah. And you're going to have to use the one you played live. Hey, a decision just got made for you. That's great. You know, live with that. Don't fight it. How do how do you let that work for you, you know, as opposed to sort of saying, oh, now we have to spend all this time, like, getting rid of the guitar that's in the hi-hat mic. No. You know, maybe maybe only use the hi-hat mic with the, and that'll be your guitar channel. You know what I mean? Like, there's so yeah, many yeah. different <laughs> ways to think about things if you're creative. And maybe that's what Jim was talking about, you know, and his complimentary thing about learning from me, you know, was that I maybe helped him to see how to look at things a bit differently from that perspective, you know. Thank you very much, Malcolm, for spending some time with us today. It was it was really neat to hear your stories and to you know just to hang out with the real guy. Yes, <laughs> I gotta hear. You gotta, you gotta send me something about this fictitious Malcolm. I gotta check this guy out. I'm, I'm kind of scared to, but yeah, I'll, I'll send you links to the podcast. No, it was really wonderful. Thank you very much for spending some time with us today. Absolutely, uh, it's great. Yeah, for sure. Well, with that, it is time to, I guess, throw Breathe back in its CD case for me. Although... I got the vinyl version here. You do? You have the new vinyl version. Yeah, I do. And we have potentially... (laughs) We'll see what happens. I found (laughs) that crazy listing on eBay. Too good not to spend $25 on an original pressing of Breathe. From China. From China. We'll (laughs) see what that's all about. It's time to put whatever copy of Breathe we have away and say goodnight until next time. I don't know exactly what we'll be doing next time on Comfortable Place on the Couch, a Midnight Oil podcast, but we will be back soon. If you have corrections, comments, hate mail, you can send us email to our new podcast email address, oilscouch at gmail.com. Visit darrenfolds.com slash podcasts for any show notes what you might have. Tweet us on the Twitter at Darren Folds. That's good enough. Okay, Robin doesn't want to hear from you. <laughs> and so for Robin Harbin, I'm Darren Folds. Good night. Good night. Yeah, I just have to 
go to the toilet yep. actually as a matter of yeah. fact yeah, yeah no problem okay well you know what happens when uh when you go take a piss on this podcast <laughs> we're, we, we're gonna take over for you oh okay you know so you the know fictitious Malcolm can take over. <laughs> that's I'm, right i'm gonna start answering the questions now <laughs> bart burn can take over <laughs>